So here we come into the last sermon of this never-ending story series, other than, of course, our special Fifth Sunday edition of this coming up next week. And I don't know if you've been keeping track. I like to think you do. Like, I like to think you're keeners like that. I know I'm probably deluding myself, but, like, you've just been, like, checking off every book of the Bible. Like, have we talked about this one? Have we talked about this one? Right? So you'll know. I know. You're keeners. I'm sure you know which ones we haven't talked about yet. And this is where we are going to land this morning. So let me start by asking you this. How many of you are the favorite child? How many of you are the favorite child? <laughs> You can be honest, like so many of you are just like, yeah, I know. You know it, your parents know it, your siblings know it, everybody knows it, right? You're the favorite. How about, how many of you are the favorite grandchild? And you just know it, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, I thought so. And it, I know it's kind of laughable because uh, as a parent myself, I know for a fact that I don't have a favorite. I, I've got to say also, I, I won't speak for my brother, um, but I never felt that one of us was favored over the other to be perfectly honest. So, you know, that's healthy, I think, in a family. That's kind of how you want it to be. Um, I, never, I never felt that way. I, and I think that's probably what my parents were aiming for, that there was no favoritism. Uh, so when my Grandpa Paul's passed away, that's my maternal grandfather. He passed away a few years ago, and it was, it was really sad. He's quite a remarkable man. And he had unbelievable faith that he passed on uh, he was super funny. He was he easily laughed, um, and he loved us all like so very much. I, I don't know how many grandchildren he had. It was it's in the twenties, right? Twenty twenty somewhere between twenty and twenty five, and then then some great grandchildren before he passed as well. And I knew it was important that at his funeral I was involved somehow. There was a, there's a big family. Uh, my mom is one of seven siblings, so there was lots of us. And, uh, but I knew that it was important that I was involved somehow, and I did. I sang, sang as, as I do. That's what I do at funerals, in case you didn't know. <laughs> that's what I do. I sang at funerals. Uh, and I knew it was important I was involved because I was very special to my grandpa. He called me Chickadee, and uh, no, you can't call me that. Um, I was, he was so proud. He, 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 he called my mom Pidge, and so he called me Chickadee. And it was like, it was special, you know. And then, like, I, he was so proud that I was in full-time ministry and, um, so I knew it was really important that I was a part of that service. Very, very big, well-attended service when he passed. And then something happened at the funeral. Every single other cousin that talked at the funeral felt the exact same way as me. My cousin Johnny did a tribute and in his tribute, he was like, I know I was the favorite. And then my cousin Lauren said the same thing. All of us thought we were his favorite for some reason. And he had a lot of grandkids. Um, and it became a running joke among all us first cousins because we were like, well, obviously I was a, well, I was the favorite. Everybody knows I was the favorite. Grandpa loved me the most. Like that was what we all legitimately thought secretly, but then obviously not so secretly after that. And I guess that's part of my grandpa's legacy now, isn't it? That, that all of his grandkids felt like they were all his favorite. And I wouldn't be surprised if my kids and my brother's kids have a similar experience at my parents' funeral. Um, that's, that's a very cool legacy to leave. And that, I, that idea of being somebody's favorite, even if you're not really, feeling that special to somebody is, is what came to mind when I was working on this last message in our series. Because we started with creation in the fall, 
And then last week, uh, we talked about Acts and the letters of Paul. And then you'll know, like I said earlier, like what's missing, like what's left in this scenario are the, the other letters and then the book of Revelation. So we're just going to do a real brief uh, sermon on the book of Revelation this morning. So it should be really fun. No, it shouldn't be a problem at all. Uh, but that, that feeling of being the favorite came to mind when I was thinking through these particular books that we have left in our series. Because the author of four of them is the Apostle John. And John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Have you ever read this in the Gospels? He calls himself that because it's his gospel. He's writing it. He's like, here's an example. Okay, literally at the Last Supper, there's John writing his account of what's happening at the Last Supper, John 13, 23. John writes, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. That's literally what he says. And he's, he's speaking of it like in the third person, but that he's talking about himself. And he does it several other times. I love this. I love this in John's writing, like the one who Jesus actually loved. Like, that's how, he, that's how he felt. And John was, like, not a lightweight among the apostles um, at all. It's not like he wrote, like, fluffy stuff and the other apostles wrote the hard-hitting stuff. Not at all. It's just that when you read John's writings, you can feel how he, how he uh, translated God's love for him through Jesus very specifically. Like, you can feel it and hear it in his writings in a very, very special way. He, he seems to be writing from a place of understanding the love of God in a way that is uh, both beautiful and also for us super helpful uh, to understand it. Because his perspective, he just was so zoned in on that. He, he seemed to have understood the love of God uh, really, really intimately. So I want to take a look across these last letters that we haven't talked about yet. And then I want to settle into John's message. And I want to just, uh, for free, I've been saving this. I, I know I don't really have time for it, but I, I'm going to put it, I keep, <laughs> I keep taking this paragraph out of my, every message of the series and throwing it into the next one. Be like, I'll have time for it next one. No, I don't. Okay. I have time for it in the next one. No, okay, I don't. Okay, here's a, just a little quick thing. A super helpful off-topic hint for you that I just want you to have because I'm really, really passionate about the church understanding that they can understand the Bible. It's not just people who have studied for years and consider themselves scholars that can understand what's going on. I really really, really believe that the, the scriptures are for all of us. The scriptures are for all of us. The scriptures are for all of us. And so I just want to say this as a sidebar. Uh, one thing that you can do if you feel like the scriptures are overwhelming for you or you don't know where to start or you don't understand what you're reading is to read the introduction to a book in the Bible before you read in that book of the Bible. And it might sound obvious, but maybe you've never thought of that before. In the YouVersion app, the NIV for sure, I'm sure there's others that do, but I know for sure the NIV has a little synopsis of like who this book was written to and what the circumstances, so the context, uh, who it was written to, who it was written by, kind of when it was written, what was going on at the time. And uh, so you get a little hint of like what you're reading. Uh, start there. If you've never tried that before, start there in your Bible reading. Um, or the, we always talk about that Read Scripture app, the, the Bible Project videos. They're super easy to find online. They have so many resources to help you explain. Pastor Aaron used one a few weeks ago, right, to explain big concepts in the Bible or to give you an introduction to the books. Like, always do that. And it's really easy to do if you've never tried it. Start there because I think you're going to find it helpful. And it is, in fact, doing this, finding that initial context. Who is it written to? Who is it written by? When and why? Is the first step in... This is an incredible word. I dare you to try to use it at lunch today. It's the first step in hermeneutics. 
just let that roll off your tongue for a second, hermeneutics. Then you can call yourself a Bible scholar. I do some hermeneutics as I'm reading. Hermeneutics just means knowing how to uh, use and apply basic rules for interpreting and explaining scripture. So just like how to really look at the scriptures for what they're, what they're worth and what they really mean. So that's the first step in hermeneutics. That's the first step in understanding and applying uh, the scriptures. Just start with understanding the, the first, or reading the introduction to the book of the Bible that you're in. So I would, of course, encourage you to do that as you're reading through scripture, wherever you're reading, whatever you're looking at. And again, for the ones that we're going to cover today, to give you way more than I can give you in the time we have this morning. So there are, here's another one that's like really Bible college There are the Pauline epistles. Does it make me sound smart when I say it like that? The Pauline epistles, which are just letters written by Paul. Remember, epistles means letters. Pauline means Paul. So there are letters written by Paul. So if you ever come across something fancy like the Pauline epistles. And then there's also the general epistles, which just mean like literally all the other letters in the New Testament that aren't written by Paul. Okay? Like it's as simple as that. Um, and these letters are specific because they weren't named for the, re- the recipient. Like the, the Pauline epistles. I'm just going to keep using it so it feels like normal language for you guys. The Pauline epistles are written um, by Paul, but they are not called like Paul, first Paul, second Paul, third Paul. They're written like Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Galatians. They're written like they're named for the people who are reading the letter receiving it. But the other ones are, except for one, are, are actually named for the author. Okay, so the first one is James, uh, who is the brother, or more specifically, half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and James seems to have become a believer, uh, a believer in Jesus after his resurrection. And James was a powerhouse in the early church. And he was essentially the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And his letter is... So it's such a great study. His letter is full of practical instruction. It's super no-nonsense. It's like, here's how your faith uh, plays out in the real world. Here's how the rubber meets the road kind of stuff. No jokes. Uh, Here's some examples. Faith without works is dead. Maybe you've heard that one. Or the power of life and death is in the tongue. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. Or if you grew up in the church in the, New King, in the King James, it's availeth much, if you will. It, that's how my grandpa Paul's would have preached it. Uh, and uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously. All of that's packed into the book of James. Then First and Second Peter are letters from Peter. So you guys are great. Well done. Adam was the only one I actually heard say that, but I'm going to give you all credit for it anyway, but 10 points for you. Um, in, in, uh, basically, Peter is calling Christians to persevere in the truth in these books. And 2 Peter chapter 1 is where we get the material for our Everything You Need course. So incredible. It's also available in podcast, or, or you could download it. Both of those things are freedomkw.com slash next. You can just find that resource from 2 Peter. And then there's Jude, who was also a half-brother of Jesus, like James. Um, and he doesn't seem to either, also, like James, doesn't seem to have come to the faith until after Jesus' resurrection. Um, and very much like in the, in the way First and Second Peter are written, and perhaps uh, Jude being influenced by Peter, he is warning Christians about false teachers to be on their guard. And he gives, like, Jude is a cool book. It's got some weird stuff in it that's kind of like, wait, what, what was that? But also... Probably one of the, my favorite and best, best. I mean, what's best in the scriptures, really? But a great, how about that? A great doxology at the end of the book of Jude. I'm going to read it for you because it's amazing. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. 
To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. And the church said, amen. Right? Isn't that great? That's the book of Jude. And the exception, if you're, if you're doing a checklist, you'll know the exception to this thing about uh, it being named for the author is, uh, maybe figured out by elimination, is Hebrews which was primarily written to Jewish Christians, which makes sense because Hebrews equals Israelites equals Jews. Those are interchangeable terms now. And I don't even pretend to hide it. I love me some Hebrews. Hebrews, like when Hebrews came alive to me, it, like, it, I, just, I just love it. It's so full of, uh, oh, this, oh, oh, this is because of that. Like, like hearkening back to the Old Testament. Or like, this Jesus, because of Jesus did this, and it fulfilled this, and so that means this for us. This is incredible. Like, it's, it's full of that kind of stuff. You just have to read it kind of slow. Like, what happened then is fulfilled in Christ now. And, and the most important thing in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than all the things. All the things. Like, that's what Hebrews is about. Jesus is, is better than all the things. I, I can't even list them. He's just, it's still all the things. And we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, which is why it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's not named for the author or really a specific group of people, just it's a very general group of people. It was traditionally thought to be Paul who wrote the book of Hebrews. Modern scholars don't think that that's true because of the style of writing. And the fact that Paul doesn't say it's from him, which would be the only instance of that, which, so it doesn't really make sense why he wouldn't uh, sign it. Uh, maybe Apollos or Barnabas or even Priscilla wrote Hebrews. We don't know. They were all leaders in the early church. They were all very well versed in the Old Testament scriptures. We're not sure. Uh, so that's, and that's the book of Hebrews. Then we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So here we are, back to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And from 30,000 feet, his first letter, 1st uh, John, is a, is a letter of encouragement to walk as Jesus walked. His second letter is about walking in truth and love. His third is a, a, actually a personal letter to a gentleman named Gaius, who was a, likely a leader in one of the churches in Asia. And he's encouraging him about a few things. And then, of course, closing the canon of Scripture is the book that is best described as trans... I mean, all of Scripture is, but really, Revelation really has this transcribed by John thing. Because while John is actually exiled for his faith onto the Isle of Patmos, Jesus appears to him in a series of visions, and John literally just wrote down what Jesus said and what he was shown. Revelation has taken on a dark and brooding connotation. We think of Revelation, we're like, Ooh, right? But I like to just, of course, you're not going to be surprised, but I want to set that completely aside. I just want you to forget about that for a second. And I want you to hear Revelation 1, 1 and 2. This is how this book is written. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of of Jesus Christ. So it's no wonder people take Revelation seriously. I mean, we, all, we should take all the canon of Scripture seriously, but there's a revelation of Jesus. When we hear revelation, we just take that word and we go, oh, revelation. But I want you to think of it as the revelation of Jesus. 
The, the word is never, never given to us to confuse us or to scare us. It isn't given to distract us or make us worry about tomorrow. Jesus very, very, very specifically said, do not worry about tomorrow. So if you're reading apocalyptic literature and you're nervous, you're not reading it correctly. You're not given the scriptures to be afraid. You're given the scriptures to have a revelation of Jesus, the living word. So this revelation, this book, is, is from Jesus, and it's given to us, it's things that he wants us to know about, and more importantly, the, it's the revelation of Jesus, who he truly is, what he's going to ultimately do to set things right once and for all. That's how you need to be looking at revelation. When you read it, look for Jesus. Hear what he's saying. Fill your mind and heart up with his words, with the images of him as the Lamb of God, the Root of David, the Alpha and Omega, the Word of God, the Righteous Judge, the Coming King. You will see him in these pages. And if you're going to worry about tomorrow, worry about those who don't know him, who don't know the revelation of Jesus, and let that fuel you, let that fill up your heart with passion to share about this relationship that you have with him with others. That's what you're supposed to be feeling not scared, not conspiracy theories, not looking for, wait, there was a blood moon last night, right? Like not trying to figure out where in Revelation that way. Like that's not the point. Or else Jesus would have told us to do that. Instead, he's saying, this is a revelation of me and of what things are soon to come. What to be looking for, what to be ready for. So listen to what the Spirit would say to the churches. Revelation is the only book in the New Testament that has the uh, category of prophecy. It's apocalyptic, which is a word we also get very nervous about. Apocalyptic, right? Uh, it just means, and but the word simply just means that it, it, it's, uh, it's literature that deals with the end of all things. So I guess it's fair to be nervous about that. <laughs> it just deals with the end of all things, guys. Don't, like, don't get your, like, knickers in a knot about it, okay? But because it's in a prophetic language and it, it, the fact that uh, it's largely John's descriptions of his visions that Jesus gives him, it's not clear um, when or how these things are going to happen. Have some of them already taken place? Are they happening now? Are we on the precipice of them? In short, yes. All of the above. And no, because we don't know and all of those things are true. Is the imagery and metaphor really what we're supposed to be looking at here? Or are these actually descriptive of real events? Like, how are we supposed to read Revelations? Yes and no. Both, because we don't fully know. It's not made perfectly clear for us in the book of Revelation. And I have to tell you a secret. That doesn't bother me one little bit. And if it, if it does bother you, there's, there's grace for that. That's fine. I understand. Like, we just, sometimes we just want the clarity, and I, I get that. But it doesn't really bother me, and here's why. Because this is the way that Jesus chose to reveal these things to us. He could have done it a lot of different ways. It didn't have to be with this imagery and this metaphor. It didn't have to be in visions and descriptions. It didn't have to be uh, a vision of heaven and, and what that looked It could have been in so many different ways. He could have said this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and we could have just checked the boxes. But he chose not to do that. In Revelation. And I, just for me, you can call it naive if you want. I'm okay with that. But I, I think that's enough for me. 
that's enough for me. Before these visions uh, that John is, is writing down, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, you can go ahead and flip there if you want to take a look at what I'm talking about, if you've never seen it before. But John writes down letters to seven churches that are from Jesus. And they, Jesus says, you know, write this to this church and then to this church, seven different churches. And each letter is deeply convicting and beautiful and hopeful. And Jesus says again and again, over and over, he says this. There's an example in, uh, in Revelation 2.7. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this is my general posture towards Revelation. I don't need to understand every vision and every metaphor. My posture is this, Holy Spirit, let me hear what you are saying to the churches and to me. Holy Spirit, let me hear what you are saying to our church and me as part of it. Jesus, I want to read these words and I want a revelation of who you are. Not who I think you are, not who society tells me you are. I want a revelation of who you actually are. This is Jesus, your inspired word. It's, these are the words that you wanted me to read. These are the things that have been preserved in the canon of scripture for me. So the question I'm asking Jesus is, what do you want me to hear in these words? That's my posture in the book of Revelation. Some people will, uh, scholars will say that all of the book of Revelation has been fulfilled at points in history. Over the past 2,000 years, all of it's already been fulfilled. So you can, you know, kind of pick and choose, figure out which belongs, which part belongs to which. Some people say that all of, all of Revelation will be fulfilled in the, in the future, in, and there will be a rapture of the church, and, and Jesus will come and, and take away all those who believe in him, and then there will be seven years of tribulation, and then there will be the thousand-year reign of Christ, and there will be new heavens and a new earth. And all of that is to come. And then there's a people who believe everything in between. <laughs> and so don't be nervous or confused if people are, are doing their best to try to grapple with what all of this means for us living in this time, in this age. That's okay. It's okay to wrestle with it and grapple with it and ask good questions and kind of try to understand it. As long as the posture of your heart is... I want to hear what the Spirit would say to his church. Jesus, why do you want me to hear from your word? You gave us revelation in this format for a reason. What do you want me to hear from your word? So people will say a lot of things. People will speculate, and that's, that's fine. That's part of biblical scholarship. That's great. But above that, as, as an umbrella over that, I would say, Jesus... Whether any of these people are right, wrong, or, or some are right, there's pieces, this is going to, whatever, however this all works out in your timing, I will be ready. That's what Jesus told us in plain speech. The thief comes in the night. If you knew the thief was coming, 
You would make sure that your house didn't get broken into. But when I come again, it will be like a thief in the night where you don't know. It will take you off guard. So just always be ready. There's parable after parable that Jesus says, you're not going to understand all the, all the little bits and pieces. It's not for you to know. What's for you to know is to understand something incredible is coming and you need to stay ready. You need to stay ready. You need to stay ready. So the prayer becomes, Jesus, I will be ready. I will watch for you. I will be on guard. And I will pray, come, Lord Jesus, in your time and in your way, and I will be submissive to it. That's the prayer for the church. What we know for sure from the book of Revelation is that he is coming again for the church. He is coming again. And I don't know if you're just shocked into thinking about what I just said about being ready. And so you're just letting the Holy Spirit saturate that in your heart. But I'm just going to say this again, church, just one more time. One thing we know for actual sure, no matter what else happens, is that he is coming again for his church. Oh, yeah, that's what I thought. I just knew that you were ruminating over that last idea. And that he is going to judge everything perfectly. Everything perfectly. And he will make everything new. And until then, we have the honor and the privilege of waiting in the things that he's brought to us already. Forgiveness, salvation, redemption in this life, in this already, as we wait and long and expect for the not yet that we see in scripture. However that plays out, which we don't fully understand, but however it plays out, we know that these things are true. So from that place and that posture, you can dig into this book, you can learn about it, you can study it, and you can enjoy it so very much without fear or trepidation. You can just look for Jesus. Look for what he's going to do. Make sure that your heart is ready. Let the book of Revelation call you back to the center, to Christ. Let everything else fall away and make sure that you are saying, Holy Spirit, let me hear what you would say to the church. That's where it's calling you. So have fun studying Revelation. Enjoy seeing Jesus in it. Look for him. Oh, he's actually everywhere being revealed to the church. So the point of this, uh, this whole exercise this summer in every part of scripture that we have gone through from Genesis all the way now here to Revelation is to ask two questions. How does this, or what does this reveal to us about God? And how does this point us to Jesus in one seamless, never-ending story in these beautiful pages? How do we sum all of this up? When I graduated high school, I moved to Edmonton to start Bible college, 3,000 kilometers away from home. Into my first apartment, there was no residence at my Bible college, so I had to pay my utility bills and rent and things for the first time. I had to take public transit for the first time. I grew up in a small town, never taken the bus before. Pastor Aaron and I were uh, roommates. We just stood on the corner and we're like, I hope this bus is pointed in the right direction. We don't know where it's going. Like we had all kinds of new things, lots, lots going on, moved very, very far away from home. And I have a September birthday, so just a few weeks after I started school and I moved away, I had my 19th birthday. And... That week of my 19th birthday, a box arrived in the mail. In it, there were strawberry Pop-Tarts, a taco kit, Old El Paso, obviously not like off-brand, a Duncan Hines marble cake, which by the way, do you know that they don't make those anymore? 
If anybody finds one, let me know, okay? Uh, otherwise, you have to make a chocolate and a white. You have to mix them yourself, and it's a lot of cake, okay? Uh, a can of icing and a couple of rolls of quarters for laundry, right? Remember, anybody still doing laundry with quarters? They're probably loonies and toonies now. Uh, and basically, the rest of the box was filled with as many of my favorite things as it could hold. But those are the things I know were in the box. I can remember 20, almost 22 years later. Albeit, these, these were things that um, my mom knew we always did for my birthday. I always wanted Pop-Tarts for breakfast. I needed to have tacos for supper. I liked marble cake. And normally she would make, make her own icing, but, you know, you can't send that in the mail. So that was that. It was kind of a DIY, Tracy's favorite things on her birthday box. And she made sure, as my mom would, that it arrived before my birthday so that those things were available to me on my birthday. So you can imagine my reaction when I opened my very first care package at college, being so far away from home. I was just like, what's even the word? Utterly delighted. <laughs> and then I remember that box coming, but then the boxes kept coming. Not just on my birthday, like randomly, all the time, for four years along with money to help pay the rent every single month. <laughs> and by the time I graduated, um, I had already been married for a year. Rob and I got married between my third and fourth year of Bible college. And I figured that when I graduated, the care package days were over. Nope. <laughs> they didn't come as frequently, uh, but definitely always on my birthday. And this, this woman, she's here, uh, this woman sent me boxes for seven years while I lived away from home. Now, if you know my mom, it doesn't surprise you one little bit, right? No. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't even know if I have capacity to think like that. But, uh, it, it, but I'll tell you something. It wasn't just about getting Pop-Tarts that made me happy. It wasn't just that, although that was great. Uh, it was opening the box and knowing that the one who sent it knew me so well and loved me enough to make that kind of effort. You know what I mean? She knew what I loved. L love. <laughs> I don't have Pop-Tarts on my birthday in a few weeks. That's cool. Uh, she, knew I, she knew what I needed. Quarters are annoying to get. You know what I mean? She knew what I needed. And she knew what would make me feel connected to home and know that I was loved. And to me, that's a, I mean, I know that's a very human, small microcosm kind of example, but I think you know what I'm saying. This is what I see here in the scriptures, but on, a, of course, a way bigger scale. This is what we have in the scriptures. We have answers about how and why we were created. We have an understanding from scripture why there is so much pain and suffering in the world. We have an understanding that... Um, God has given us access to him. Even in the Old Testament scriptures and the tabernacle and all of those things where God was always making a way, always making a way for people to be close to him. We have the warnings and the messages and the callings from God to his people over and over and over. A message calling them back. A message calling them back. We have him coming in the flesh to pay the price for the fall that we could not pay ourselves. We have forgiveness and freedom that we can live in now through faith in Christ. 
We have instruction and a path for a transformed, spirit-empowered life. We have then also where we land this morning, the conclusion of that plan for this creation. The final triumph of Christ over evil, over death forever. The perfect justice of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are sent this package so that we can know him and be seen and be known in it and to connect with the very uppercase O, one, who wrote it for us. Who preserved it for us. Who just made sure that this package got to us. And so today, very simply, as we conclude this series and think about all that we've been given in this word and how this word reveals God to us and how this word points to Jesus and our need for him. I'm calling you just, just for a few moments this morning into awe and wonder. I don't know the last time you were there, but maybe it was this morning already, but let's go back to that place. I'm calling you today to awe and wonder. I'm calling you to hunger for his presence Maybe for the first time in your life to be hungry to know the word, to not see it as other, to see it as inaccessible, to see it as something that you, you can't understand or grasp, but instead to be like, I actually really, really want to know what is in this package, what is in these words, what it is that God has sent to me. I want to know it for myself and I, I want to start on that journey or I want to jump back in where I left off, whatever it is for you. So just if we could this morning, I want to call you back to some awe and wonder.